And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. On the left side for Kocher, stopped by Taglianetti. They do some pushing. Kocher and Taglianetti drop the gloves. And here we go. Taglianetti going at Kocher along the boards, but Kocher's got that right arm free. Kocher is one of the better fighters in the NHL. He's a heavyweight, but Taglianetti puts them down. Episode 26 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features Peter Taglianetti, a 10-year NHL pro with the Winnipeg Jets, Minnesota North Stars, Tampa Bay Lightning, and of course, the Pittsburgh Penguins, with which he won two Stanley Cups. Peter also enjoyed a standout four-year career at Providence College and is a member of the PC Hall of Fame. A tough, old-school defenseman, Peter was an important figure on those powerhouse Penguins teams providing a hard-hitting and aggressive style that was a perfect complement to his high-flying teammates. Peter's an entertaining guy and a great storyteller. In fact, he tells about a dozen excellent stories in this episode alone. Now remember, you can contact us by visiting ProHockeyAlumni.org or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProHockeyAlumni. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Peter Taglianetti. We're back on the show with Peter Taglianetti, a 10-year NHL pro, two Stanley Cups, and a member of the Providence College Hall of Fame and the pride of Framingham, Massachusetts. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. No problem, Mark. Anytime. Peter, growing up in Massachusetts, and I grew up in basically the same era in the same area i grew up in worcester uh, so bobby orr and the big bad bruins and channel 38 were predominant among everybody and my question is was that a uh, something that you and your family were involved in as fans of the bruins of that era and that what influenced you to start your uh, playing hockey as a kid well that that was the one of the catalysts that that started the uh you know, in the in the '60s, I guess. I mean, obviously, we were, I was very young at the time. Uh, they they were kind of struggling a little bit until Bob York showed up and put up that big boom into uh, the popularity of hockey in the area. And next thing you know, a lot of rinks started popping up and and whatnot. So everybody was enthralled with what was happening, and, and you had that big push, sort of like what happened in the, the '80 Olympics. Right. You know, that made that was the second boom of hockey in the New England area. But um, but I'll tell you the honest to God truth is uh, in my neighborhood. I was like, I was the only kid that wasn't playing hockey. And so when they, all the kids go off on Saturdays and Sundays, my mom, you know, I'm, I'm only six years old. My mom thought, well, he's going to get in trouble if he's by himself. So she actually put me into hockey because of that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how, uh, how things, how things work out now when you were moving along and you're, you're obviously, did you, did you, I'm assuming you played multiple sports in addition to hockey as you're going into high school. I, I was a baseball player as well, yes. So when in your hockey development in high school, you're, you're eventually going to be recruited by none other than the legendary Lou Lamorello. Uh, when did you kind of notice that uh, you may have the opportunity to go to, to college and play, and when did you start attracting attention of uh, area colleges? Well, after my uh, sophomore year uh, in high school, um, so I, I made the varsity, and my in Framingham is a big town. So there's a, and there's four high schools in that town, but there was a lot of kids who played hockey, and and to make it as a sophomore, you, you know, it was pretty special. Right. Um, but but then my junior year, the coaches decided that I was going to be one of those guys who's going to be, uh, um, I guess they call it a, a, a rover type person. I never get off the ice my junior year. I stayed on for power play, penalty killing, and regular shifts. And I took a break every now and again, which was very different. I never saw anything, never heard of anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right after that, um, I got in, invited to go play in that uh, hockey night in Boston at the time, where right. it just started out. Mm-hmm. And it was only four teams, the North, South, East, and West. So it was basically 80 kids who got to play in this. 
now it's I, I forgot how, I, I forgot how big it is now, but it was only eighty kids who got to play, and that's where I really started getting noticed um, uh, by the colleges that uh, I had probably had a chance to go go play at the next level. I always feel like it must have been as a teenage kid. Maybe you were just oblivious to it. A little intimidating <laughs> meeting some of these guys, uh, uh, Lou in particular. Uh, what was that like, and how did he end up being the a uh, person who convinced you to go to his college? Um, well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think I had a pretty good uh, idea of what, what I was as a young man at the time. Um, and so when all these coaches started coming around, uh, the Jackie Parkers of the world, Lenny Siglarski from BC, uh, Lou, um, um, I've got Holt from uh, UNH, I forget his first name, I apologize. Um, but anyway, they all started coming around. Um, and it was fun going to going to visit the colleges and going to visit all that kind of stuff. And and one one thing I noticed is, um, and I admit it, I wasn't the, the greatest student in the world. Um, and all the classes, all the schools I went to, all the classes were huge. And it wasn't like they, they didn't take attendance. And, and and I knew if I went to a school with you know a hundred kids in every one of the classes, I probably the tendency would have been not to go to class. Um, that was right. that was a big reason. Um, but then you went down to uh, uh, Providence. And, uh, and and I'm sure you, you've talked to Lou uh, some uh, times, and, and you can see how intense he was, and oh, yeah. what a disciplinarian he was. And um, he was the type of guy that knew what you were thinking before you thought it. You know, he <laughs> would say something, and you're about to say, you ask a question. He goes, "I know what you're going to say," and, and and he was dead on. Um, and I and I think that was a, a, a sire, a, a kind of a, a leaf thing for me that that I have somebody watching my back at all times. Um, and I, I knew that the freedom would have been great in a lot of other schools, but I think for my, my personal development, going to a school where he walked around campus with a notepad, and if he saw you, he looked and see where you were supposed to be. And if you were supposed to be in class, you were, you know, you were in big trouble. Um, but then he was no nonsense on the ice. Um, uh, he had a way of doing it. He, he played a system. Uh, but that system allowed you to, to freelance every now and again. And, and, and um, I, I think that developed it more because I was able to think a little bit clearer and, and read and anticipate things that are going to happen mm-hmm. before they happen. And, and I think that system allowed it to ha- do that because I was able to look around and I knew a guy was going to be at a certain place at a certain time and I was able to see two or three things off the other distance and I was able to make a decision from there. So that he really is the guy that developed uh, you know, the thought process of, of getting to that next level in the NHL. And you really matured as a player in your sophomore year. Uh, and the Winnipeg Jets take notice, and they draft you. Uh, one of the things you bring to the table, you you held the maybe it, it, it still exists, uh, but you held the all-time Hockey East uh, record for penalty minutes. Um, so, so you made <laughs> I don't a, know if that's a good thing, but yes. <laughs> but you made. I, I guess uh, at some point you're 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 playing to your strengths, um, and you're saying to yourself, "Look, my role here." Is you know obviously you can step into the play and make plays offensively you know play defensively but when did you start developing the ability the the, the physicality to and the aggression to uh, stand out in such a way uh, to NHL scouts? Well, you know I I, I use this all the time and I, I always when my kids were growing up and and I talk to young kids now I I always say you gotta find your niche what is it, what is the thing you do well or you can do well they get you self-noticed and get your name noticed. And, and, and I think a lot of people try to do a lot of different things and they try to be something they're not. And, and then deve- it, it, what I tried to do is this is what I do. I'm a, uh, I, I can, I'm a pretty decent skater. Uh, I'm a, I'm a real good defensive defenseman and I need that one, but there's a lot of guys like that mm-hmm. and you need to ex- put yourself out there and get your name known. And, and so when I turned pro after my senior year, uh, after the final four, about a week later, um, they, I turned pro and I went up there's two games left in the regular season for Winnipeg against Calgary and Edmonton and they were going to open up the um, the playoffs against Edmonton so the set, first game I go up there for is against Edmonton but I don't play because I just met the team like the day before or two days before mm-hmm. so I don't play I was able to watch what was going on but the last game of the regular season was against Calgary and I was able to play that in that game and so, I, all right, so I'm on there. I'm nervous as, as, as all get out. And, and <laughs> my very first shift on the ice, uh, a guy named Hawk and Lou mm-hmm. came down. The blue, we're playing the Calgary in the Saddle Dome. 
and I tell this story all the time. The he comes down over the blue line right in front of our bench, and he comes over about four or five feet off off the blue line, and he stops. And the whistle blows; it's an offside. But I go hit him anyway, and I and I knock him, you know, butt over tea kettle. You know, he's he's against the boards, and their whole bench cleared. And it was a bench clearing brawl right away, and 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 it, it was just it, it, I didn't mean to do it, but it, it, I did it, and I, my name was out there. And so after the game, John Ferguson, um, who was the general manager of the Jets at the time, comes flying in the locker room and going, "That's the type of guy I want in this team. That's the type of guy I want in this team." Well, I got my name noticed, and so now I have to now I have to continue with that. Uh, and not not being uh, uh, a guy that's going to hit somebody after the whistle, but being that physical guy or being the guy that right. will stand up for his teammates and things like that. And that's what I tried to do. I wasn't a I wasn't a, uh, a pure fighter or anything like that. I wasn't a heavyweight, but I was a guy that was willing to uh, take a punch in the face for our star player not to. Right, and playing for John Ferguson, of course. John, one of the well, actually, he was the dominant tough player in hockey in the 1960s so he would certainly appreciate that element because the Winnipeg Jets did not lack talent um, but stepping back one second Peter you uh, are second team All-American twice in Providence uh, Hockey East uh, first team can you remind you guys won East the, the Hockey East title in double overtime can you uh, recall that game um, I can't recall the game. I, re- I recall a lot of things that happened because it, it was in Providence at the time. Um, uh-huh. and, and one of the, uh, the, fun, you know, the funny part, there's a lot of things I remember about hockey, and, and it's not the winning. I mean, a lot of the games that, that we've won, I, I kind of I, I, I get bits and pieces of it, but uh-huh. I, I, the things I remember are the little things that it probably wouldn't make any difference to anybody whatsoever. But I do remember... Um, uh, Artie who played at Matinon, who came, he was a year younger than me. Um, I remember he scored this huge goal and, um, it, and it's nothing that, that I did or anything like that, but it was a goal that kind of, kind of broke the back. Uh, and, and, uh, we were able to go on and win. Plus we had a great goalie named Chris Terreri who mm-hmm. actually right. stood, stood on his head. So, um, it, it, that type of team we had, we just had a bunch of guys who, um, who stood out in certain games, and 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 that's the that's the only thing I remember is, is Chris stood out his head and already scored a huge goal. The once you you have just you just rem, uh, reminded me of when you first went into the NHL. Uh, and it's going to take a couple of years to fully develop. You sought out in Sherbrooke. I think one of those years you had Pierre Creamer, Fred Flintstone, as he used to call him, uh, yeah, back in the day, and. Um, but you're going to, as a young kid coming out of college, you're going to be, especially at that level, you're going to be tested and I'm, I'm, physically. And I'm curious about, as you said, you're not a, a you're, you weren't an enforcer of any stretch. You're a skilled defenseman, but you're going to play a physical role. How is that adjustment now? You've gone from, from college hockey now to the pro level on the buses, in the minors. Um, what, what's that adjustment like for you? Um, well, <laughs> It's funny. The very first game we played, I, I played in the minors. It was against Baltimore, the Baltimore Skipjacks at the time, and that was the Penguins farm team. Uh, so, but they had guys that are on the team. I remember uh, Gary Rissling, uh, mm-hmm. Wally Weir was down there, uh, Bennett Wolf. Wow. Uh, now these guys were <laughs> these guys were, uh, you know, they, you know they they've been around for a long time, and you're skating around and. Um, yeah, Gary Rissling was probably one of the scariest looking dudes you ever saw in your life. He was a little guy, but boy, he was tough as hell. And, but he, but he's skating around, and they're like snarling at you because it's like fresh meat. Now remember, so I go down to Sherbrooke, and Montreal and Winnipeg shared a farm team. Well, Montreal had a bunch of guys down there from U.S. colleges. Uh, Dom Campidelli, who played at D.C., he was down there. Scotty Harlow, Kevin Hool. Uh, there's about three uh, guy, uh, Scotty Sandlin, who is the coach of uh, Minnesota Duluth now. He's from... Uh, 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 he's from Duluth, um, and then we had a couple guys from Wisconsin there. So we had Amer- we had American college guys who never fought. You know, nobody we'd ever fought before mm-hmm. on the ice, and all of a sudden we're down there. So we had a good group of guys, and we all kind of stuck together. But that was one thing we're sitting in there, you know, in the locker room, going like, <laughs> we went through four years of college and got a degree, and <laughs> this is what we're facing. <laughs> <So it was> like, <laughs> what are we getting ourselves into? What are those types of uh, scenarios? Um, but you know, you go down there, and it really is once the puck drops. 
your instincts kicked in and you just played. And then if you got physical, it got physical. If it didn't, we tried to, you know, do what we could. But there was a bunch of, we had guys down there that Montreal and Winnipeg had that were tough as well. And, um, and we all stuck together. And I think that was the one thing because you're on the buses together. You know, and back in the day, and, and not like the, guy, the players today, where a lot of guys go off in different directions. Mm-hmm. This is like a college atmosphere where you all hung around together. You know, you, you, know, you, um, you sat on the bus, you, talk, you talked, you, you joked around, you went to a bar, had a few beers, you were all together. Nobody went off by themselves. So you actually built this uh, camaraderie that um, you were willing to go and do those little extra things and, and, and maybe you know, get in a fight for somebody because mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a thing to do. That's very interesting. Recently, 1987, 88, you kind of hit your stride and develop into a, a full-time NHL player. Your coach that year is Dan Maloney, who passed away recently. Dan yeah. was a, as a as a player, was a uh, was a leader and a captain and a um, a real force wherever he played. I was curious of how you found him to be as uh, as a coach and as a person. Um, well, I'll, I'll go as a person first. A great guy. And 99% of the guys you meet in hockey are the greatest guys in the world. Mm-hmm. They really, uh, they really care for you, um, but they're under pressure as well. And as a coach, he was a he was a good players coach, and, and guys like playing for him. You know, the, the tough part when we were in Winnipeg, we're playing against the Edmonton Oilers in their heyday. We're playing against the Calgary Flames, who Bob Johnson, you know, built up into this juggernaut with big, huge guys who can play. So Winnipeg was one of those afterthought teams that you're under a lot of pressure to win. And unfortunately for any coach who went there at the time, it was very hard for them to succeed all the time. We had right. some really good players, but you just couldn't get over the, you know, my very first uh, game in the playoffs against Edmonton, I kill him a penalty. And the five guys on the ice were Gretzky, Messier, Anderson, Curry, and Coffee. That would know, be, be five for five <laughs> in the Hall of Fame ballot in there. Yeah, so, so what, are you, what are you supposed to do, you know? So, so, the, so it was tough for coaches to go there, but yeah, I love Danny. Danny. Danny gave me my start. Uh, he was a, he was a uh, no nonsense. He, he praised the guys who didn't always get the praise. Um, uh, he he led into the stars who maybe didn't produce at that particular time or whatever game. He wasn't afraid to do those type of things. And, and whether he rubbed with guys the wrong way, I, I don't think so. Um, but like I said, I think it was an, just a very tough uh, atmosphere to win in. And, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I think I was there. I had Barry Long, I had Dan, I had Bob Murdoch. Um, so I was there for four and a half years, and I think I had five coaches. So right. it was very, very, it was, it was tough. Fergie would sometimes be impulsive, and uh, he had that, that uh, again, as you said, it, it, it was uh, a very thin margin out west in those days because the Oilers were, uh, a, a Hall of Fame. You know, you got you know seven or eight Hall of Famers you're playing against, and you get into a seven game series, and that, that's tough to overcome. And you talked earlier about uh, doing what you do best, and on that team, I guess that philosophy really paid off because you had on the blue line over that that course of time some guys who were really slick offensively. You know, the Dave Ellis, Randy Carlisle, Frederick Olsen. Um, so you developed. I, I'm assuming your your approach was, and that's what was needed then, is to play a stay-at-home throwback. I, I always looked at you as kind of a throwback defenseman, um, staying in your own end and making uh, life a little bit easier for the guys who were lugging it up the ice uh, uh, the other way. I knew I knew why I got a paycheck. <laughs> I knew <laughs> uh, you know if I if I can score you know four or five goals a year, great. Uh, that wasn't going to. Uh, get me a new contract. My my goal was a plus minus. You know, mm-hmm. you know, if I could get a good plus minus, then they they know my worth. Um, you know, I was my partner up there was uh, Randy Carlisle, who uh, was was probably one of the most inspirational guys, uh, and not in a rah rah sense, mm-hmm. uh, just just in like teaching you the right way. You know, and, and making you think a little bit more, and and. and and giving you, hey, you can do this. Don't worry about this. You know, screw them. You know, you know, who cares? You know, let's go out and do this. This is the way we're going to play. Um, and, and he calmed a lot of people down, which was which was a very very good thing. Um, but you know, it's it's funny when you watch these uh, guys play. Um, and Winnipeg had a had a lot of skilled players up front. Dale Howardchuck. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Lori Boschman was a you know a 15, 20 goal guy. Uh, so we had guys who can really play and really score. 
Um, but we, we weren't the, the, the toughest team as far as being physical or anything like that. And, and those are the, that's the thing when you sit there, what's your niche on this team? Well, i got to play defense and be physical. i got to make people pay if they come in our zone. And if somebody takes liberties on one of our stars, i got to take liberties on one of their stars. And, and I think that's was the uh, you know, what I tried to bring to those teams. And, um, you know, but when you say, when you talk about Dan Maloney, um, he was one of those guys where he wasn't go out there and, and, and kill somebody, you know, or, or whack it with a stick or anything like that, but make him, make him pay for it. You know, and if it, if you have to fight, you have to fight. And, and I think, um, you know, some guys didn't like doing that and some guys, you know, didn't mind doing it and some guys loved doing it. And I was one of the guys that didn't mind doing it. I didn't love it, but I didn't mind it. But I knew that's what I need to do. When you're physical like that, sometimes I I remind people when you're doing that and you are, you're in the playoffs, for example, you're you're doing that ninety nights a year, as opposed mm-hmm. to football. I'm not I'm not you know I'm not comparing the two sports necessarily, but you know football you have you have the week off, you play sixteen games, you're playing physically eighty ninety times, you throw in exhibitions a hundred times, and that's expected of you every single night. And does that that wear on you at all? I mean, you get it's midseason, it's February, and you get a game on you know Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday or whatever. Um, is that tough to physically and mentally get prepared every night? Um, you know, you, that dog days. You're on fifty games, fifty five games into the season. You're like, oh, you can see the end. You see the playoffs coming around. You're counting those days down. You know, but you no, know, but the games didn't. Uh, the games didn't bother you. I mean, once the game started, your adrenaline rush and whatever, whatever little nagging injuries you had, you, you forgot about them for that two two and a half hours. And I, I think the the part that people don't get about sports in general is um, it, it's not the not the pageantry of the game because everybody goes and say, "Wow, this is what a great life this is." Mm-hmm. It's behind the scenes stuff. It's the um, it's the travel. It's the practice. Back then, we traveled commercially, so we didn't have private jets. So you would have you played a game in Calgary, and you had to get back to your your, your Winnipeg for the next night. A lot of times, you stayed overnight, got up at five o'clock in the morning, flew back, and played the game that night. Those are the things that that kind of burnt your mind out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that your body was aching from. Uh, once the game started, you were fine, but but it's that back behind the scenes stuff that people don't get it, and they go, "Oh, you traveled all over the place. You must have seen some great stuff." No, we saw buses and hotels and planes. You know, we, <laughs> we didn't get to see anything, um, even though we were in Vancouver and it's a beautiful day in Vancouver, and uh, you didn't see any of the city. Um, so those are the things that that probably dragged you down more than the game itself. Um, but once the season's over and, and you start, like, you have a couple days, and all of a sudden your body goes, "Oh, wow." Jeez, my 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 knee hurts. You know, I got I got to get this thing looked at. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and those are the times you, you, when you have more more time down. That's that's the uh, um, uh, the time that uh, you start thinking about all the injuries and feeling it more. Peter, eventually you uh, are traded to the Minnesota North Stars. Have a have a brief stay there, and of course the the course of your life and your career change, and you are traded with Larry Murphy to the Pittsburgh Penguins. The Penguins at the time were kind of, uh, had a lot of talent, were amassing a lot of talent, kind of laboring through an up and down regular season, obviously on the verge of some very special things. And right, uh, I think after your your trade, Ron Francis uh, came along with Elf Samuelson. So first of all, I'd like to get your reaction to being traded to Pittsburgh and the atmosphere of the club at that time. Now you're playing with Badger Bob Johnson, and what a special time that had to be in your life. <laughs> well, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty hard couple months. Um, I got traded, so I was in Winnipeg at the time, at the beginning of that season, and uh, Mike Smith, who took over for John Ferguson, and Mike Smith, I really like, Mike Smith was one of those really cool guys, he was one of those, um, he wasn't a traditional hockey guy, didn't he? No, right. Him and I got a, a pretty good relationship, uh, he would just call me in and ask me questions and, and just argue about stuff, and... Uh, it was just anything about the Russians coming over. What do you think about the Russians? And you know, you give me a, and you sit there and argue about all all these things going. On. Anyways, so at the end of that, uh, uh, right before the end of the training camp, they they uh, traded for Phil Housley, and so Phil Housley came, and so now they have to make a decision who how, who's going to be the defense there, and it was um, 
they, they so they wanted Dave Ellett, Frederick Olson, Teppo Newmanen, Phil Housley, Randy Carlisle, and they had their, uh, a, kid, a tough guy, Sean Cronin, who mm-hmm. was Cronin the Barbarian. Uh, so right. <laughs> they, they thought they wanted the they they figured those were going to be the six guys. So Mike Smith calls me and he says, "Hey, well, this is what we're going to do, um, and we may we're going to try to trade you." And I said, "Mike, whatever." I said, "But if you're going to trade me somewhere in Canada, I'd rather stay here and be the seventh guy. And but if not, please you know, tra- you know see if you can trade me to the states." So he calls me. We had a game that night, an exhibition game, and he calls me. Say hey, we just traded you to Minnesota. You got a couple of days, and just uh, and then you got to go down there. And you know, Bobby Clark calls and says, "Hey, you know, we'll, we'll see you." You know, Bobby Clark was a GM of the mm-hmm. North Stars at the time. So we'll see you in a couple of days. So I go down there. So I get there the right at the end of training camp. Uh, so that's what beginning of October, I think it was. And I had three little kids at the time, uh, Patrick, my oldest, and I had a, a brand new set of twins that were a year old. Uh, mm-hmm. So Patrick is three and, and they were two. So anyway, so I go down there and we start playing. And so finally everybody gets out of Winnipeg and gets down to uh, uh, Minnesota, probably about the mid, mid-November is uh, by the time everything got cleared up and get down there. And, and Minnesota's struggling, we're struggling, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so <laughs> December 13th, um, Bobby Clark calls me and he goes, uh, "Hey, we just traded you to Pittsburgh. Craig Patrick's going to call you by." Boom, hung up the phone. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. Wow. And two minutes later, Craig calls and says, "Hey, Pete, and I met Craig before." And and, uh, uh, and he goes, "Hey, no, geez, I can't wait to see you." Blah blah blah. I can't you know? Blah blah blah. But you got to play tonight. Oh. So I, this is this is like eleven thirty in the morning. I just got home from a morning skate. Uh, just sit down to eat, uh, you know, pregame meal. Um, he says, uh, you know, meet Larry, Larry Murphy's going to meet you at the airport. And we're, you're gonna, so we get on the plane. We fly. They pick us up at the airport in Pittsburgh. We, should, we walk in the locker room. Um, <laughs> Bob Johnson, we walk in. Bob Johnson calls me. He says, hey, can you play the right side with Paul Coffey? I said, yep. <laughs> so that was the end of that. And so I started. And that, was, that was it. So, and then so and the, uh, the, the family moved. So it was two major moves in a, in a, in a month, month and a half cross country so that that was kind of you know like oh how is it how are we going to handle this thing right before christmas and then um but then it was just and we struggled and we when i got there we were still struggling up and down a little bit and bob johnson had just gotten there and um and i'm sure you've talked to hockey players before where it's always you know you're going to get yelled at you're going to get yelled at you know no matter something's going to blow up at you, you know no matter what you know and and bob was one of those guys who never yelled never said a bad word about anybody if there was you know we lose seven to one he'd pick out the 10 good things that happened in that game and that's what he carried on to the next thing you know blah, blah. And, and so you can see everybody's going like oh he's gonna blow he's gonna blow he's gonna yell at us and he never <laughs> did and so by the time february rolls around and they start you know craig starts making some more trades they brought in scotty young who, who came in right uh and and then uh the, the deal for ronnie and often uh, grant jennings uh, and, and the one guy on that, the Penguins team that probably deserves the ring was John Cullen. Uh, he held that team together um, when Mario was hurt that whole, that whole year. Um, and then he, he gets shipped off, uh, unfortunately, and he wasn't able to be part of the championship part of it. Um, but then when, once that happened, everybody's still going like, up and down, up and down. And I think right around, you know, March, you can see people in their heads going like, "Wow, Bob really means this. Bob, not this is he really preaches this stuff." And, and guys started buying into it. You can see us slowly building momentum as everybody starts believing, it, you know, and, and, and what Bob was teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just took off, and you know, we struggled. Uh, you know, the first round against Jersey, most first rounders, first round series struggle, and we ended up beating uh, uh, Jersey in the seven games. Uh, with a great save by Frankie Peter Angelo, uh, which you know, and, and the rest is history. And then we just started, you know, cruising right through that that, that playoffs. I couldn't help but be envious of the Penguins. I was actually working for the Hartford Whalers at the time, and as you noted, we lost Scott Young and then Ron Francis and, and Elf Samuelson. And you could see, boy. In fact, I I, I think I, I told Ronnie before I left. I said, "You're going to win a Stanley Cup because you could see all the elements there." As you said, Johnny Cullen was a was a hell of a guy. He came came the other way, and it, um, uh, he was 
a guy that uh, he played in the IHL and you know maybe was underestimated at first, but he he was a heck of a mm-hmm. player as well. And you have to give up that that level of of player to get where you want to get to. And you guys certainly did. I, I, what I, I guess the obvious one obvious question is now you guys are are, are rolling Mario's back. He's at his his best right around this time period. He's he's. He's getting, or I don't know if he's, he was ever at, at full health, but he is getting healthier. What was it like playing with him on a day-to-day basis, just seeing him in practice? I was always just mesmerized by the guy, just watching him. It almost seemed like he could do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And uh, what was it like playing with Mario Lemieux? Well, you, you hit the nail right on the head. If if he wanted to do something, he did it, and nobody could have stopped him. Um, you know, you're playing against them, you know, so I played against him a bunch of times when I was in Winnipeg, you know, uh, and you just see that he did some really good things, but you really didn't notice a whole lot because you just saw him in spurts and things like that. But when you see him day in and day out, mm-hmm. um, it, it, he's big. I mean, he's not the most physically, uh, physical presence that you see. I mean, wow, look at that guy. But you sit there and look at him, he's on the ice, he's big, and he can skate, and he can shoot, and he has, he can, he has, Nothing phases him, and when he wants to play, and he wanted like it, 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 he took the bull by the horns. I always I said this on all these uh, playoffs. Is Mario? This is when you make my money. <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you play well, you're going to make me money. So let's go. You know those type of things, and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, and, and I'll just tell you. I remember. I don't know if you remember the, the playoffs against uh, uh, Boston, where uh, he picks the puck up. Above, 20 feet inside the, our blue line and Ray Bork is on defense and Ray Bork turns, skates forward towards his own uh, blue line just to pick up momentum and by the time he turned around, Mario blew by him. Right. And nobody did that to nobody did that to Ray Bork and and that's when everybody went oh my god, how, how could he do something like that and and, uh, and you know, and that's what Mario can do and um, and, and I think it was the old adage let the sleeping dog lie and as soon as teams pissed him off that, that's when he just shifted into a whole nother gear and, and when he went up uh, he went up, he went up so, so many different levels that even though he brought everybody with him he was still way above everybody else and, and um, just to see him even in practice he did things in practice just shake your head and go wow <laughs> I'm glad he's on our team right well certainly was fortuitous for the Penguins it, we ended up drafting him he would become not only one of the great players in the history of the game, but also an institution in Pittsburgh, saving the franchise. And really, if you think of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, you think of, of, I guess, the Steelers and things like that, but also Mario Lemieux. He's just developed in, in just the philanthropy uh, alone, giving back to the community and what he's done for that franchise has never been done before in probably in history of sports. And I'll t- I'll tell you one of the things that people don't get about him because he's not he does not want to be in front of a microphone he doesn't want to be on a TV camera uh, he does things because he wants to do them and you'll never know about half the stuff he does the only time that you ever see, hear about him doing anything is that when he's doing something for somebody that person announces it mm-hmm. other than that you will never know the stuff he did and, and the, the amount of the, the, the money and the charity work and the, the buildings he put up for kids and things like that that, that are in Pittsburgh um, that, um, you know, to this day, I don't think people realize the, the extent of it. And and, um, and he's a good guy. And that, that's the part that people don't get. He's not a phony. He's, he, he, he does what he does because he wants to. He doesn't do it because people expect him to do it. Um, and he doesn't say anything he doesn't mean. And, and I think that's one of the good reasons, one of the reasons why he doesn't go on TV or do anything like that because you know people are going to ask him and I, I don't want to belittle reporters but they'll ask him some dumb questions and instead of him getting in a situation where he's got to you know throw some BS at them he just doesn't do it and and I think sometimes people may say well you know he, he doesn't he, he doesn't talk to anybody he's arrogant or whatever he's far from that and I think people need, uh, don't understand him and, and when they if they ever get to know him uh, and I, t- I tell people all the time, I said, if he was in the room right now, no hockey or anything like that, and you didn't know who these people were, you would not know who he was and what he did. And, right. and that's the type of guy he is. From my years, I, I spent five years uh, working in Pittsburgh, and 
I also previously had, had had worked with Gordy Howe, and I've gotten to meet Bobby Orr and things like that. But he, there was something about Mario that was a little bit different. It was almost like royalty in a way, as you said. He was he was not looking for attention, uh, which maybe increased his his persona in a way because you didn't see that much of him. And uh, he, but like you said, he was extremely personable and. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a big relief because when I first uh, went to the Penguins organization, part of my job was to help market him and work with uh, his uh, agents, uh, Steve Rich and Tom Rich at the time. And so I was a little apprehensive going into it. And then it, w- it was uh, it was quite nice to see he was uh, he was just a regular guy. Um, and I you know, and, Bob, and, Bob, and, Bob, and Bobby the same way, you know, right. but, you know. If you knew who he was, you know, you wouldn't think. But he, he doesn't pretend. He is one of those guys where, you know, you look at you look at the hockey history. And one of the things, Mark, I, I, will, I will tell you right now that it upsets me a little bit as a lot of these young guys who play today have no idea about the history of hockey and, and where it started, where it was, and all the guys who, um, uh, you know, in the in the late 60s when they wanted to start, that, start the union where a lot of those guys lost their jaws, but they were emphatic about, Getting it started and protecting the players, the Carl Brewers of the world, and things right, like that, who, exactly. who who lost who lost their livelihood because of uh, what they believed in. Um, you know, in the in the in the trials of uh, Bobby, when you know when he read his book, you know all the stuff that he went through with Alan Eagleson and all that that type of stuff. And, and uh, those, I wish that these young players not only just know the person's name, but knew what they did. You know, with the, some of these guys and some of the, the older guys who are just starting to pass away now. Those are the ones that uh, you, 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 they they need to know the history of the game, and then they don't, unfortunately. But yeah, they sure do. And for all those, I could think of not only Alan Eagleson, but a guy named Richard Sorkin. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the players, so many players lost everything. We're taken advantage of. And yep. Part of it is, and you know, as you started this conversation, you know, the hockey players are good guys and they're good people and I, I think they went into this I don't want to say naive because that sounds negative they went in thinking the best of people thinking that oh, of course Alan Eagleson has my back and you know they're very very trusting and so many players as you know that paid paid a very heavy price uh, in the in the it, at least in my era in the, in the 70s and early 80s where as you said, even go back to Ted Lindsay when he, you know, was starting the union with Detroit. Yeah. He found himself getting getting traded. The owners did whatever they could do to uh, rebuff all of that. And you mentioned Kyle Brewer, so you're a real student of the game, and he was yeah. you know, very, very outspoken and uh, was proven. All those guys, a lot of those guys who were dissenting, even Mike Milbury, you know, in the in the 1970s. Yeah. Well, you know, he kept voting against. The, he was all, always the, often, as a player rep, the Bruins, the number one dissenting voice in collective bargaining agreements because he had a sense that something was amiss, and it certainly was. But you know, speaking of of the history of hockey, Peter, uh, you are playing on a Penguins team now. You played against those Oilers teams, you know, mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of times. But now, and I, I think of it because I was with Joe Mullen recently. We were talking a little bit at a, at a charity event, and I, you think back. One of, one of the great, one of the greatest guys of all time, <laughs> Joe Mullen. <laughs> Joe Mullen, you talk about down to earth guys. You know, this guy's yeah. a hockey hall of famer, but he could be, you know, he could be pumping gas to the gas. You wouldn't know. I mean, he, he's right, just exactly. a regular, regular guy. But he was, he was my roommate in Pittsburgh. Oh, so, great. So I go, yeah, me and Joey. <laughs> so you know, we were talking. I said, you just imagine, I. I there had to be eight or nine, including your coaches, uh, Hall of Famers coming through that team over that, that two-year time period, some of the greatest to ever play the game. What was that like? I mean, when you look back at retrospect, the I guess just the appreciation, it, had, it, must be, it must help elevate your game as well when you're around such elite talent on a day-to-day basis. Well, I think a lot of it, it, it one, it's an e- it, it eases your mind a little bit. You can make a mistake and not a big deal. And, mm-hmm. and when Bob Johnson was there, if you made a mistake, he didn't punish you. You know, if you made the same mistake again, he wouldn't punish you, but he'd talk to you about it. Hey, listen, you know, and, and it's like, all right, I'm, I'm not afraid to make a mistake because he'll, you know, I'm not going to be benched or I'm not going to be sitting in stands or anything like that. Uh, but then all of a sudden you look in the locker room, and, and I'll just go right real quick down the order here. Hit Lemieux. We had Yarmer Yager who came up as you know who was just starting his career. That as an 18 year old, 
pretty much blew everybody away as far as the talent and what he could do. Then you had Brian Trache, who was on our, then Joey Mullen. And we had a guy named Yuri Herdina who came from Calgary, which people don't realize what a great hockey player this guy was. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then you bring in Ronnie Francis, and then you had Kevin Stevens. Um, and then the second year, they brought in Rick Tockett. You know? So it was like, all of a sudden, you, you just keep replenishing some of these guys who can, who can play and, and, and score goals and, uh, uh, and do the little things. And then we had a good group of role players. That's the part yeah. that people don't get. Oh, yeah. We had a fourth-line center named Randy Gillen, who probably scored the biggest goal in uh, in Penguins history, and nobody knows about him. Uh, he scored. He scored. In, uh, we had to pull our goalie against the. Um, um, I, 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 I think it's Devils. Uh, we were down a goal. We pulled our goalie. Everybody's watching the play. The goalie came off. Nobody jumped. Randy jumped on the ice and scored the tying goal and won it in overtime. Wow. You, you know what I mean? So that, those little things like that, that that stick out in my mind. Um, but, yeah, but you look down that list, we had got, you know, like uh, uh, Bob Airy, um, who, against the Bruins, you know, he pretty, he pretty much stood up in the locker room and said, you know, I'll take care of Ray Bork. <laughs> you know, that's all he said. <laughs> so he, he hit Ray Bork every time Ray was on the ice. And he kept pounding him and pounding him and pounding him. You know, then they had Alfie, you know, you know, was uh, going to go head to head with Cam Neely. So you had guys that were our role players uh, that took big leadership roles in certain games and certain series. Uh, but that was we had plenty of guys to fill up the, fill the slack as we got going. And uh, and I think that's one of the big things about that team is that we had guys who were the stars. But once the playoffs rolled around, they did the little things to make stuff happen. You know, absolutely. It was very, very special. The expansion in 1992. Craig Patrick does not want to relinquish you, uh, but the yep. num- numbers are, and it, with a name like Tag the Eddie, the Espos, Espositos aren't going to pass you up. So you uh, <laughs> you end up in uh, you end up in in, in Tampa. Uh, that 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 I, I call it my sabbatical, <laughs> my four month sabbatical. Now. <laughs> Uh, but obviously you're separated from your family at that point it's a you're going from the very top to the very bottom Um, but was was there some level of of excitement about helping to to start a franchise in a warm weather climate no less Uh, well just a quick history of it Um, when I was in Winnipeg playing we played the New York Rangers in in Winnipeg and in Madison we played them and I got in a couple fights when I fought uh, Mark Tenorti and I fought a guy named uh, um, uh, Ron Telekoski, his name was. There was a tough guy they bought up for the minors. Mm-hmm. And I fought him. And I fought these guys. And so that was – so the next year I ran into Phil somewhere. I, I think it was at a, 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 the owner's meeting. So, you know, I was with a player up. And, uh, and we were talking one day. And he goes, you know, I, I've been trying to get Fergie to trade you. Trade you. you know, <laughs> I was trying to trade for you, blah, 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 blah. And so it never took place. Get to Pittsburgh, no big deal. And then the expansion draft ro- rolls around in 92 for the 93 season. And uh, I, had, I had back surgery that year. Um, and I was just coming back from back surgery uh, right before the playoffs, but uh, they were on a roll, and so I didn't, I didn't play uh, much in the playoffs. Um, and then uh, they left me unprotected. And, and Craig called me, and he said, listen, I've got to leave you unprotected. But I don't think anybody, I don't think they're going to take you because of the back surgery, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, Craig, whatever, that's fine. I understand this business. And so then he still picks me up, you know, and, and I and I and Phil and Tony that Phil and Tony asked me to go down there and, and it was it was actually a lot of fun and great learning experience for a lot of guys and um, but we went down there with the team that uh, like you said we were going to be at the bottom um, but there was no pressure on us there was no expectations on us mm-hmm. other than just to go field the team and yeah, I think we set the record for all expansion teams of that year um, I think when we left there we, we won like I think we won thirty something games that year. Yeah, which is yeah. unheard of, and uh, and we played really really well. And but you know it's business, we get it. And and the funny part was before the season, we had a uh, a, a golf uh, outing with uh, sponsors and stuff like that, and we met some guys who who actually belong to Augusta National Golf Course. And they go, oh, hey, at the end of the season, y'all we we'll all get together, we'll all we'll go down and play. And we're like, oh great, you know. Well, everybody that decided that. Everybody was going to go do that. We all got traded away you know, to oh. other teams and stuff. So now we got now we got a chance to play. So <laughs> that, that sucked. Um, but yeah, they and then um, uh, and right around the trade deadline, um, we were going on a road trip. Um, 
We're playing the Buffalo Sabres, and this is the stuff I remember. Uh, Doug Bodger took a shot from the blue line. It got deflected, came up and hit me in the side of the head and hit my helmet and sliced my ear. So mm-hmm. I had this big, huge gash in my, my uh, uh, side of my head and my ear, and it kind of affected my hearing a little bit. So they wouldn't let me go. On, we were leaving on a road trip that afternoon, at night. Um, uh, we were playing an afternoon game. We are leaving right after on a, on a road trip, and, and they wouldn't let me travel. So I, actually, I was actually sitting down in Tampa, and uh, phone rings, and they say, hey, you know, Phil wants to talk to you. Come on down. So I went down there, and he told me that uh, they traded me back to Pittsburgh. So I couldn't, I couldn't have been happier. It was a perfect scenario for you. Craig obviously wanted to have the opportunity to get you back. He succeeded, but you're going to a much different situation than Tampa, obviously. It's a kind of an emotional time, that 92-93 season. And I remember it distinctly, because that's when I, when I first came down to Pittsburgh. And of course, you have Mario uh, coming back from cancer, from the... And coming all the way back to lead the league in scoring, I mean, he was probably never more dominant than he was in that that stretch at the end of 93, which is saying a lot. And, of course, you have the devastating injury to Kevin Stevens in Game 7 against the Islanders and the upset loss. Um, Mm -hmm. What was that? I I guess I've always... Curious, what, what 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 was that like? That psychologically, that that last couple of months in of that uh, very traumatic, for lack of a better term, Penguin season. Well, so when I got traded back there, we had just they had just started on that uh, 16, 16 game winning streak. So I think I got there with uh, maybe like there nine games into it, mm-hmm. and uh, things. I mean, you couldn't. I mean, we we're. God, I, we probably had what one, two, three, four, probably about five guys that were, that were going to the point of scoring forty goals that year, you know, and above. Mm-hmm. And things are just rolling along. And and Mario, when Mario when Mario came back, I think Pat Lawson came was beating them by, uh, I'm going to say, a good forty points in in the in the scoring race. And Mario just boom, going two assists, three assists, you know, three goals, you know, blah blah blah. And it was only maybe like twenty games left in the regular season or whatnot, and. Uh, and he just started, you know, just turning things out. And, and like I said, things were just rolling for us. We were just, and we just, I, I, and I don't know, I don't think it was guy, in guys' head that we were just going to blow through everybody. Um, but it, it, things came, came really easy for the team. Mm-hmm. And then we, then all of a sudden playoffs start. And it's a, playoffs are a whole different ballgame. And anything can happen, you run into a hot goaltender. And uh, Glenn Healy was the goalie um, for the Islanders at the time. And and the whole series, he just stood on his head. Um, and I think, even think the seventh game. I, I think if we look at you look at the shots, I think it was like something like forty to like sixteen shots, right. you know, for the game. And you know, we ended up uh, David Volk scores that goal, and, and uh, boy, what a devastating! And, and from that point on, I mean, obviously the, the team from there kind of disintegrated because of uh, the ownership and you know selling people off and these big, huge contracts they signed with deferred, deferred money. And uh, so it kind of, kind of, and people throw the word dynasty out there. And 93 team was our best team out of the other two, uh, out of all of them. And, you know, you just kind of fall by the wayside with it. And, and it was devastating, especially when we see what happened to Kevin uh, in the aftermath of that, you know, what happened with him and mm-hmm. his personal problems. And, uh, but I think, you know, all in all, I think to this day, if you talk to anybody um, that was on that team, that was probably the most disappointing and regrettable seasons of their whole hockey careers. Right. It's very similar to uh, players who played on 1971 Boston Bruins. Uh, In between two Stanley Cups, they lose to Ken Dryden, uh, who had six NHL games to his credit to that point, and came up and and shut them down, and that was – to me, as a as a kid, I was I was stunned. But you know what? I had the same feeling, that that same awful feeling. And it wasn't just about the winning or losing. It was it was it was Mario coming back from uh, mm-hmm. unbelievable situation physically. It was the injury to Kevin Stevens. It was just uh, nightmarish beyond the, the winning and losing. And but you know, one thing I going just and I appreciate the, the time today. I. I remember distinctly. I don't know why I remember it. I remember it distinctly. It's on YouTube now, but I remember going to a game in the Civic Arena, and 
you had a fight with, uh, or at least one, with Steve Thomas. Yep. And I remember saying to myself, geez, Peter Tagnetti can throw him. Man, there were some, <laughs> there were some shots. So looking back at your career, Peter, you fought some some tough hombres, some dangerous guys in the 80s. The 80s is a little bit different you know, than it was like when John Ferguson was fighting in the 60s. When you're fighting in the 80s and 90s, you're fighting against guys who are uh, weightlifting, sometimes enhanced, uh, some yep. big guys. And uh, so... Looking back, who was the the, the 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 toughest fighter that you fought? Oh, um, Daryl Stanley, uh, who played in Philly and Vancouver. Um, he was he was tough. You know, you know, but it's funny. It, it wasn't so much the um, uh, another guy, Lee Norwood. Uh, Lee Norwood played for the uh, mm-hmm. Detroit Red Wings. Uh, you know, but it wasn't. Those are the guys that. Yeah, they were tough, and, and and I hope somebody said, hey, you know, Peter was tough too, one of those type of things. Um, but it was the guys, like, honestly, guy, and I say this all the time, the guy that was the toughest guy I've ever played against was a guy named Stan Smeal, played nice. for Vancouver. <laughs> he was a little guy, but boy, he was the toughest guy. You couldn't hurt him. Uh, he, you know, you, you got in fights with him. You, you, he hit you. You did all these things. Those are the guys you, you, you were kind of in the locker room going like, oh, I can't believe I'm going to get hit by this guy every single time I touch the freaking puck. You know, that, those are the guys that kind of sit in the back head going like, oh, I can't believe I'm playing against this guy again tonight. You know, one of those type things. Mm-hmm. The fighting took care of itself and, and, and you fought him. And, and there were some tough guys. And, and, and not always, I'll tell you, the, the, you know, the toughest guy, I think, pound for pound that I ever saw play was a guy named uh, Robbie DeMaio. Mm-hmm. He was probably the toughest guy. I didn't have to fight him. But I saw him knock out a bunch of guys that were way bigger than he was. Um, that, that was probably um, uh, you, you, an eye opener. Is where I don't care how big you are, you, you can get beat by anybody. And this guy was a little guy. I mean, he was only five ten, and he beat everybody up. You know, so uh, it's it just the way the league was. You, you could be the biggest guy in the world if you didn't have any balance. You weren't right. going to fight well. I think that's what the, the people don't understand. Absolutely, Peter. As uh, you conclude your career I, w- I was curious about lingering injuries one of the things again that people don't again you're you're, you're a physical guy you play over a decade and of course you played four years of college too so you've got 20 years of uh, intense hockey competition under your belt it's going to take a toll on you um, in your case as I recall uh, you had a lingering hip injury uh, I'm just curious as you're what, what what type of physical and, and physical health battles, if any, did you go through uh, after your career? Well, I, I I just had I just had a surgery recently, so that would be my 16th surgery. Wow. Um, so I I've had two back surgeries. Um, I don't know they, they operated on my knee maybe three or four times. Nothing major, no ligament damage, but like cartilage and things like that. I've had uh, a punctured lung. Uh, Two major shoulder surgeries, uh, 13 broken noses, wow. um, uh, a broken orbital bone, broken jaw, um, elbow surgery. Uh, shoot, what else is there? All in all, I had, I had 16 surgeries. And so then I, recently I just had, well, I got hurt when my last year was playing and I had needed a hip, so I got my hip replaced from that. And so that was done. And so I was done playing. And then oh, two years ago, I was at work. I was in construction, and I get hit by a car at work. And then I had to get my hip, the other hip replaced because of that. And then I had to get that revised. So, so, there, so there's lingering effects of, of all of it. Um, um, nothing deliberate uh, uh, that I can't function. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it just like like cold days. You can you know your body aches a little bit and things like that. But I I've, I've been pretty active. I kept active. I, I kept working. Um, I didn't sit around. Um, I just started taking hot yoga, which <laughs> if you asked me five years ago, I would have like swore up and down. I've never go near a yoga place, but it was one of the greatest things I ever did. Oh yeah. Um, Why is that? Yeah. I have a, um, cause it, 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 uh, it, it is no pounding on any of your body. It's basically stretching and strengthening. Um, my body, I actually can bend in certain in areas. I, I haven't been able to do it in 20 years. Um, I feel great. I mean, I, I really do. And I think the other part of it is uh, the mental stuff. Uh, 
um, you know, the, the CT and everything that's going on, a lot of the guys, you know, whether it's hockey, football, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once I stopped playing, I, I got into the broadcasts right away, so I was uh, able to get into a, a schedule and a routine and, and getting up in the morning and go to bed at night and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I went to private business and the same thing. I was in a routine and I got schedules, I got to do this, this. But I always did, like, crossword puzzles. You know what I mean? So I kept my brain working all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't tell you how many concussions I've had. Uh, but, uh, numerous. I, I'm going to say at least 15. Wow. Um, but uh, everything's fine. And, and, and that's the uh, – people say, why, you know, why are you different than anybody else? I, I don't know. Uh, my wife's a doctor, and I say, you guys ought to do a study on the CTE part of it where – where we grew up as kids, and this is my this is my goofy thinking, is that you know we grew up you know drinking rusty out of rusty hoses and things like that, and you know there was no uh, uh, they didn't shoot uh, steroids into a chicken or anything like that, and, mm-hmm. and and a lot of these young guys nowadays are getting into that, you know they they, they have all that uh, and they don't have the, the stuff that like I said I'm just talking out of my head, but the guys I played with nobody has nobody has any problems. Oh really? You know some of the older guys before us have problems and then the real the guys who are having it now a lot of the um the fighters who get punched in the head a lot of times right so i i, I kind of take those out of the equation a little bit because that was a little bit different um but yeah that, i i just um I, I think i just kept my body um moving all the time and, and my head thinking all the time that I, that I really don't have any lingering effects other than the surgery well thank goodness for that and you're uh now living in the Atlanta area, and yep. but you remain connected to the Penguins family via your son, who uh, still one one of the twins. And I'm sorry for not remembering uh, which one. Now Jonathan. Jonathan's Jonathan, now yep. still working with the Penguins. So, I guess what that affords you is, you is you're still connected. Is you have the opportunity to participate in the, uh, for lack of a better term, the fathers. Trips. Yep. Yeah. Every year, I get which, to go on those. <laughs> so I recently, I, I noticed recently you had. I, I believe you were uh, uh, on Long Island, and uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, never thought I'd see Nassau County Coliseum ever again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, right. But this, I guess they um, uh, they contracted to do their twenty twenty five games a year there. The Islanders did so. Um, so we went there, and boy, is it, they did a nice job renovating it, which was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to see uh, meet some of the parents of these young guys who are, who are who are coming up and just starting out. Um, so a lot of the past four or five, so I've been on four of these four or five fathers trips right now, and the the, the only constants, the constant one of like the, uh, Sydney's dad was there. Um, and Chris Tang's dad was there, and there those pro, uh, the only two that are there all five times. Mm-hmm. So every year there seems to be a new, new batch of uh, dads are coming through. Uh, and so it's really cool to meet them and see where they come from and you know, what, they, what they thought about hockey and how they, they brought their kids up and, and whatnot. And none of my kids play hockey. No, my kids are all football players. Right. So, um, so it was just funny to see how they, they went about how they did their stuff and, and kind of compare notes of you know, what you did for your, you know, encouraging kids to play. A sport, and I told my kids, I don't care what you're doing, something you know, right. tell me what you want to do, and we'll do it. And I'm not going to force you to play hockey because I did, and uh, they all play basketball. My my daughter, uh, so I have two sets of twins. My youngest set of twins, 24, a boy and a girl, and then John and Andrew are 29, and Patrick's my oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a, we have a blended six family, so I have a little 11 year old girl now um, that uh, is just starting out in basketball and things like that so oh, great so my but my my old school dad philosophies of you know <laughs> yelling and screaming it just doesn't work anymore <laughs> you know it does it i have a 14 year old and i i i tried that method and uh <laughs> it just uh not not working it's not the it's not the same, and that's fine. It it's, keeps my blood pressure down, and um, you can. He, the only but, thing, the only thing I ever told my kids when they're playing is that you know, you, you never take yourself out of a game. You know, uh, you know, you never let the other person know you're hurt unless the bone is sticking out of your body and your blood, your blood spurting out. You don't come off the ice or, or the field or you know whatever it is. And uh, that was my philosophy in it. And we'll, we'll deal with all that stuff after the fact, and, and whether it was right or wrong. That was just how I you know, how I perceived my kids. I just didn't want them to. Um, uh, I don't want to say um, give up or um, 
or if you're you're the best player, I don't want you to set an example of of of, of slacking off. Mm-hmm. There's more. You be the leader. You be the person. And, and my kids play baseball. I said, you know, learn to play the positions where um, nobody wants to play, like catcher right. in little league, catching in outfield. You know, they all everybody wants to be the shortstop. Everybody wants to be the first baseman. Everybody wants to be the pitcher. You learn how to be a catcher. You learn how to play the outfield. You can play in any team out there. Right. And the same thing in football. So, you know, these are things you do in football. I never played football in my life, but, you know, play the positions where, you know, guys don't want to play. And then, then you find your niche, and then you can improve in all the other things. And that's what these guys did. They, then they all get scholarships to play football. So I can't, right. I can't complain. No, it works. It's actually not a bad uh, – life philosophy either do the things that nobody else wants to do and as you did early in your career is carve out a a successful niche for yourself and peter uh as always you're entertaining and insightful and really appreciate the time today we uh, went a little bit into overtime we appreciate uh you spending a little extra time with us but uh, a lot of uh good insights and stories and uh, reflections from you today and we greatly appreciate it and we hope to talk to you again soon Anytime you, anytime you want. You have my number now. And, <laughs> and Merry, Merry, Chris, Merry Christmas. Same to you and your, uh, your wonderful uh, six-person blended family down there in beautiful Georgia. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you, Mark. We'll see you later. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.